You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents network of podcasts. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and with me today is Todd Rose, author of The End of Average, How We Succeed in a World that Values Sameness, on sale January 19th. Todd is the director of the Mind, Brain, and Education program at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, where he leads the Laboratory for Science of the Individual. He's also the co-founder and president of the Center for Individual Opportunity, an organization dedicated to providing leadership around the emerging science of the individual. He lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where he joins us on the phone to speak about the end of average. Thank you, Todd, for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right. Now, I'm going to get to a lot of the information that you you talk about, particularly the three principles of individuality in a moment. But my very first question is that, you know, in your introduction to the end of average, you say that the hardest part of learning something new is not embracing new ideas, but letting go of old ones. And that the goal of this book is to to liberate the readers once and for all from the tyranny of the average. What is it exactly that you think we need to be freed from? And why is it so important to you that you get this message out? That's a great question. So um, I think that the hardest part of sort of letting go is that there are certain ideas like this idea of the average person that is so deeply ingrained in our society. You know, everything from the way we think about newborns and whether they're healthy to the way we structure school and workplaces and the way we do medicine, that we don't even question some basic assumptions. And so we see all these challenges that are facing our society and we know that we want things like personalized medicine and personalized education and and better workplace environments. But we've not really realizing that at the root of those problems is a basic idea about the way we see ourselves as people. And so my hope is to use this book to start a conversation that sort of surface this basic assumption we've made um, and have a conversation about it and help people to see that it's actually the thing that's holding us back. Yes, it's it's so interesting. Tell us a little bit about the beginning of the end of average, where the average became normal and the individual became an error and the stereotypes were, were validated with the imprints of science, as you say. Yeah. So it actually, this whole idea of an average person, it seems sort of normal to us now, um, but it was a very sort of bizarre insight. And it happened in sort of the mid 19th century where um, countries were trying to figure out how do you govern like these really rapidly growing populations. And no one really had, there was no science of society, no social science. Um, And actually it was an astronomer um, named Adolf Ketele who came up with this idea that like in astronomy, Um, if we were all astronomers and we were trying to measure the speed of Saturn, we'd all get slightly different measurements. And so people would say, well, which one's right? And it turns out that more or less, if you average together everybody's measurements, the average is usually the best estimate. So that was an insight from astronomy that turns out to be true most of the time. So Ketelet's kind of bizarre (laughs) sort of of logical jujitsu is he says, well, hold on. If the average is right in astronomy what if we stopped worrying about all this like muddle of like individual people and, and averaged out people to make an average man? And he coins the term the average man. 
And he says, hey, that's who we should study. And he decides it's not just like a mathematical thing, but it's like a real like moral truth. And he thinks average is perfection. And he believes that, hey, if if governments used averages, um, they should strive to make everybody average. And he thought any deviation from average was a monstrosity is what he called it. So this becomes like the foundation for um, uh, bureaucracies, for census, and then it slowly makes its way into all the rest of social science. Yeah, and- so everybody just basically said, oh, yeah, that sounds good. And and everybody just ad- adopted it. Is that is that right? Yeah, so it, it's funny. Like there were criticisms early on, um, primarily in medicine, where people realized you're just treating a patient. There's no average patient. They They knew that from day one. And interestingly, a lot of the like poets and stuff like this started writing um, criticisms of it. But I, I think what happened is, you know, it does provide certain information that's valuable to people who, who control other people, right, um, who, who run governments. But also, um, for example, it allowed us to invent insurance, which did not exist. Yeah. And so you, you could yeah, see Yeah, there were it. certain benefits. Yeah, it, and, and that's still true today. It's just those benefits don't extend to understanding people. Right. And it prompted this whole you know, the system must be first and how we valued, you know, the cog and the machine as opposed to the individual initiative or the individual accountability, right? Because you you trace you trace that back to this this whole age of average, right? Right, right. So one thing that always puzzled me was, okay, so you've got some academics in Europe who are fascinated with this this idea of the average person. But then it it doesn't really get applied into our lives in a meaningful way until it's actually in the United States and, and, and a guy named Frederick Taylor um, in the late 19th century, early 20th, 20th century, where he's going to reinvent work as we know it. Um, he helps to separate the manager from the worker. He decides, hey, forget individuals. The system has to be more important. And if you view everyone as a cog and you just de-skill every job, then what you're looking is for average workers with some basic standardized experience. And, and that... That becomes the basis for our industrial economy. Um, and then it's not, it's not very long after that you realize, well, if your economy is this way, wouldn't you want an education system that produced yep. those standardized workers? Okay, yep. So that's what led to that. Tell us the very interesting story about the, was it the World War II cockpit pilots that led to this whole conversation around the average size of, of a pilot and, and how to best design the cockpit? Yeah, that's it's one of my absolute favorite stories because it's the first time that we really start to see the failure of averages, and it's it's right after World War II, um, and you know the Air Force was a relatively new thing, and we had only had a few pilots before, but in World War II you needed a lot of pilots, yeah. um, and we ran into trouble <clears throat> where we just had we ran out of pilots, frankly, and. Um, they had these new jet engines that just come on board and we we're supposed to have all this new technology and it was supposed to be much, much better, right? Like, except for pilots were really having a hard time with these new planes, like really having a hard time. And after a while, um, you know, they, they blamed everyone they possibly could. Like they thought really like some, some generals thought it was like the pilots just didn't have the right stuff, right? This was spoiled generation. They didn't, you know, whatever. But, but um, what it turns out is they thought, well, they had designed the cockpit based on the average of a bunch of dimensions of size of, frankly, white male pilots, right? And they thought, well, wait a minute. That was back in like the 20s. So it's now like end of the 40s, beginning of the 50s. Maybe we've just gotten bigger. 
And so they said, well, let's, let's just do a massive study to get a better average, right? Because they thought like it kind of almost intuitively makes sense. If you design a cockpit based on the average height, average weight, average chest circumference, that it should be a, a cockpit that kind of fits most people. Um, and so they set out to do this massive study. It was the largest study of physical size ever done by the military. And um, what's interesting is there's one guy named Gilbert Daniels. He, um, he was brought in from, he did his undergrad at Harvard in physical anthropology. He was not an Air Force guy. I mean, he, he liked flowers and plants, and, <laughs> and, you know, but, but he studied people, physical bodies. And so he had actually figured out in his undergraduate work that the question, the idea that there might even be an average size seemed like really wrong to him. So he was brought in to do a lot of the grunt work of measuring, you know, pilots limbs, but he has this private sort of guess that like the real problem is with this idea of average. And so he gets permission to do this study where he just asks like this basic question, how many pilots are average on these like 10 dimensions of size? And most people said, well, most of them will be obviously. Yep. Um, so he, he does the numbers and he figures out there's literally not a single pilot. Not one. Not one. Not, not one. And so they realized, oh, wow. Okay. When you have a, a, a cockpit, you have a plane that's going close to the speed of sound. You know, you have all kinds of new technologies that, you know, the, the difference between life and death and success and failure can be split second decisions. It really does matter whether or not you have a good fit between the pilot and the cockpit. So what I think is amazing is the military, which is usually our most conservative institution, right, and very hierarchical, as soon as they figured this out, they make a dramatic change where they say, okay, you cannot design on average anymore. You have to design this flexible cockpits. Um, and, and they pretty quickly come up with interesting solutions like adjustable seats. Like yeah. you, could, you couldn't believe they wouldn't have adjustable seats yeah. in planes. So to me, it was interesting. Gilbert Daniels is the first to like really prove there's no average size. Um, and once they figured that out, they were able to get some really interesting solutions that led not only to better performance at the time, but it expanded the pool of talent that was available. Mm. Um, and we've been the benefit. We've been we've benefited from this um, all the way till today. Ever since. Yeah. All right. So now I want to sort of shift and, and talk about what you've identified as the three principles of individuality. But before I do that, I want to talk a little bit about you and your background and, and sort of your your unique um, sort of path to doing this type of work. Because um, as I understand it, you were not the average or ideal uh, student in your younger years. So tell us a little bit about your early life and, and what led you to this very serious study um, around individuality. <laughs> yeah, I definitely did not have a typical or <clears throat> particularly ideal um, academic pedigree. But so I um, grew up in rural Utah. Uh, and I was, um, I said, maybe to put it kindly, like quirky, um, <laughs> a, a okay. little over, a little overactive, a little, um, uh, and in a, uh, it was pretty obvious early on that like there was a pretty bad fit between me and my educational environments. Um, but, but it, that led to me actually dropping, I dropped out of high school, um, about midway through my senior year with a 0 0.9 GPA. So that's like spectacularly bad, right? Like, like you really have to try hard to get like that, do that poorly. But, um, but for me, it was, um, it was in, it was October of my senior year when <clears throat> they actually kicked me out, um, because there was no way I could graduate that same month. My girlfriend, who's my, my wife today, said, told me she was pregnant. So, 
that was an interesting month. You know? <laughs> um, like... <laughs> so just start out. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I actually spent the next two years doing a, a series of minimum wage jobs that like actually 10 of them, which I absolutely hated. And, um, and then I realized that I wanted something different. And my, my dad, who was the first college graduate in our entire family, he told me like, look, you know, you could do something great, but you can't get the kind of jobs you want without an education. And so he, so he said, look, you, you need to go back to school, which, um, was kind of an interesting choice given that school had been. Yeah. So challenging. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so I went and enrolled at a, a little local school, um, called Weber State University. It's open enrollment and, and just slowly rebuilt my view of myself and as a, as a learner. And I realized that actually, in fact, I love to learn and I was pretty good at it. But um, what college sort of afforded me was more choice in the way that I was going to engage and the way that my path through education. So I, um, I made, I think, some pretty good choices in terms of the kinds of courses I took and how I learned to study. And I ended up graduating at the top of my class um, as like the honor student of the year and um, then ended up going to Harvard for my doctorate. Uh, and so that that path for me, what I eventually wanted to be a neurologist. That was my goal until I shadowed a neurologist and I did not find it particularly interesting. Yeah, so yeah. It was, it's way more paperwork than um, <laughs> actually meeting with people. But I was taking some classes in psychology and I was learning about theories about how people learned and how they developed. And I thought it sort of seemed true, but it seemed to miss all the like pieces that were helping me be successful. And I didn't know if that just meant like I was like the exception that proves the rule or if maybe something was just wrong with these kind of theories. And um, so I got really interested in that, like this, hmm. this trying to understand individuality um, based on some of the, the ways we've been taught in psychology and, and, and uh, neuroscience. And so Harvard had a brand new program um, that allowed me to combine neuroscience and psychology and think about these things. And so um, I was very happy to end up in the program that I'm now the director of. That's that's I love that story so much. There's a part of that story in particular where you're studying um, for your GMATs and you're really challenged to, to sort of spit back the information on the test in, in the way that it's needed and the way that you can successfully retain it. And your father is the one who sort of looks over at you and says, oh, you know what? your brain's never going to work that way. If you try it this way, you, you might find more success. And sure enough, you did. And I, I just I just thought that that was such a, a lovely story and that we all, you know, if we're lucky, we all have someone that recognizes that in us that says, oh, okay, you know what, don't, don't worry about what you've heard up until this day. I'm going to tell you how, you know, to sort of crack this puzzle and to, to live to your potential, which is, of course, um, you know, everything that your book is about. Um, so tell us now about, you know, your three principles, the, the jaggedness principles, uh, principle, the context principle, and the pathways principle, because I think they really succinctly sort of um, capture a, a very um, helpful way of thinking about what to do next. It's like, okay, we're going to end average, but then what are we going to do? So I, I'm really happy that the book goes into that as much as anything else. Oh, thank you. Yeah, because so basically, if if I'm if we're going to say that average doesn't work, and, and our whole society is built on like knowing you either on average, so you're a type, or how far you deviate from average, like your rank. So if it's not type and rank, how do you understand individuals? And so from this science that I'm a part of, we do focus on these three sort of principles. 
um, as you said, jaggedness, context, and pathways. And we look for patterns about the individual themselves in those principles. So I'll give you just kind of a, a brief synopsis of each of them. So the jaggedness principle is pretty straightforward. Um, it, all human qualities that we care about, including body size, but also like character and intelligence, they're multidimensional, right? You can't, they can't be reduced to one dimension, one score, one category, right? Um, and that, let's use the example of body size. That's actually why there's no average pilot. So um, if you take some 10 dimensions of size, like height and weight and chest circumference, turns out they're not that related. You kind of think in your mind, there's a big person and a medium-sized person. But if you think about it, like the tallest person you know isn't necessarily the heaviest person you know. Right. Um, and so once we figured that out, that um, that basically if you mapped your body size, you're going to have this kind of jagged profile size. You'll be on the high end of some things, on the low end of others, and kind of in the middle on a lot of things. That that principle of sort of jagged profiles, jaggedness, extends to every human quality. So when we look at intelligence, well, we can collapse your intelligence into one score, right? Like you have 105 IQ, except for underneath that 105 are all these different patterns of jaggedness. You could be good at at memory, but bad for names in, in, or good at um, spatial abilities and things like that. So if we don't care to know you, then I guess a score of 105 is enough, right? But if we really want to know who you are, it really matters if you're good at spatial abilities and bad at verbal or good at verbal and bad at spatial abilities. Um, so that jaggedness principle is the sort of starting point. I see it as like the passport to knowing yourself. Mm-hmm. Like if you don't know your kind of jaggedness, it, you, there's really not much more you can do. But if let's say you know that now, you kind of know your strengths and weaknesses and things like that. The second principle is the context principle, which states that it's actually meaningless to talk about ability and behavior um, independent of the immediate environment in which you're performing. Um, so it, but we do that all the time, right? We talk about your personality as if it's this thing that exists above all situations and things like that. Um, so in the science, instead of looking at um, decontextualized traits and stuff like that, we look at very specific patterns, what we call if-then signatures. Um, so like, for example, um, you might be uh, very passive with friends, but might be a little more aggressive with a male colleague or something like that, or the reverse. So we want to know those kind of if-thens. You know, if this situation, then this is how you're going to behave. Um, the final piece, which I think is really important, is the pathways principle, which states that people are going to differ pretty naturally in the pace of their learning and mm-hmm. development, but mm-hmm. also the sequence of how they accomplish goals. And you take something like pace. Uh, so we kind of assume that pace is the same as like ability, right? So we say someone's a you fast learner. You certainly do. You, they certainly do. It's so frustrating, isn't <laughs> and it? it? It's And it's absolutely not true. Right. Like absolutely. And 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 before um, being a part of the science, I would have thought I was a fast learner. But really what it is, is we're all fast at some things and slow at other things, but it doesn't actually matter. Like, the, like when you study individuals instead of averages, it turns out that the pace with which you do something has nothing to do with how good yeah. you are at it. Yeah. And I think, but then you realize pretty quickly, there's a very, very practical consequences to that insight, which is how did we ever construct an entire education system based on a fixed pace, oh. right? Like it just absolutely destroys talent across the board. Uh, but you, the only way you could ever justify it is if you believed that being fast meant was, smart. Was better. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So 
I, I, I love I love these three concepts, like I said, because I think they're very simple. But what what is your advice? Let's let's just say to, to that student. And I'm, this is sort of self-serving question as the mother of a um, junior in high school um, to that student who's trying to discover her jaggedness. And it's I think that even to, to try to explore that depends on a certain level of confidence that you can sort of look objectively at yourself and say, oh, you know, it's okay that I don't, that I'm not running with the pact in this area because I might be doing something else over here. You know, what what would you say to all of these kids in high school who are being told that because you're slow, you're not smart enough, or because you react to a standardized test in one way, you, you your chances for success are are diminished? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, to the students today, right? The reality is that you're going to live in a system that still buys into these old ways of thinking, these things that are we know are not true scientifically. Um, so this this generation of students is they're sort of the pioneers, right? They're the ones that are the most important for them to understand these ideas themselves and realize that for a while the system's not actually going to support you in exploring these things, right? Yeah. Uh, but the truth is. Um, you know, the, this is where the new science is. And the truth is, if you want to be the best version of yourself, like thinking on average and thinking about normative stuff will never get you there. And I think that, um, that you know, it's a challenge for these students today, but know that we are working very hard to change the system to support that. And that by actually taking on these ideas themselves and, and really making that a part of how they see the world, they're going to be part of the change, right? And I do think that um, that there's little things, particularly with parents, because I also have two while well, they're now in college, and watching them have to navigate a system that really does want them to be just like everyone else, it's only so better. It's so hard, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, just like everyone else, only better. That's it in a nutshell. Yeah, and, and you know, like I, I felt like, you know, um, everyone's wanting to get into the best college. And so like in high school, they couldn't take – you couldn't take classes to explore who you were and what you cared about because if you didn't do well – it would actually affect your chances yeah. of getting into the college. And so it would be nice just to tell students, hey, it doesn't matter. I do think it's fair to say, look, the system is still structured this way. And I think there are opportunities for you to take sort of safe risks in terms of um, you know, chances in terms of exploring things in after school environments and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But just know like at the end of the day, just because the system is structured this way right now doesn't mean it's right. And that we are really dead set on changing this system. But to be able to take advantage of the new system that's coming, you're going to have to be able to see yourself in this more individualized way. Well, it was such it was such a great book. And I thank you, uh, Todd Rose, for writing The End of Average. And, and I hope everyone reads it. And I wish you the best of success. And so thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening. This episode was edited by Kat Theck with production help from Jennifer Monroe. The books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from the leading figures across books, culture, and the arts. All brought to you by Harper Audio Presents.